You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I am John and I'm here as always with Ryan Goldfarb. And today we're doing an episode talking about real estate law uh, or the law of property, I guess, even more broadly. I am a lawyer. That's my education and brief experience. I went to law school and then I practiced law full time for about a year. Left that to do technology startups and then went into real estate investing full time about three years ago. So I am familiar with a lot of the legal aspects that uh, real estate investors get confronted with and property law and all that. And I've been doing a lot of legal work for our communal projects. And uh, I think we'll be doing some in the future. But I realized that, you know, legal, uh, the whole realm of law, I think is both very complicated and very important to a real estate investor. And there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about how contracts work, how property rights work, do I need a lawyer, things like that. So I think we're going to take a holistic approach perhaps and talk about real estate law from kind of the first principles, if you will, of real estate law, and then maybe delve more specifically into law as it applies to real estate transactions. You might say we're going to take you from the ground up on real estate law. We are. We are. Wow. Absolutely. I am not an attorney, but I've, you know, I've, I've been exposed to enough on the investor side uh, and enough different types of deals, enough enough different types of deal structures. And I think in working with John, I've had a much more granular level of interaction with the nuts and bolts of what goes into that side of the process. So I hope that some of my experiences can be informative for others. And I hope that some of my curiosities that I have been, or some of my curiosities that have been satiated by John's experiences and knowledge can be transferred to you, the listener. So we could start with this by talking about the sort of like two pillars maybe of found, of real estate law, property law and contract law. Does mm-hmm. that sound sure? Does that sound accurate? Do we want to start with yeah, talking about property yeah, law? Yeah, let's talk about property law. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So property law, ready? Go. <laughs> no. How would you approach the sub- the subject of property law? I guess is well, definite like <clears throat> definitions or just thinking about yeah, it so kind of conceptually. How property law is, I think when you think of uh, for when lawyers go to law school, there are a couple of classes that all law schools will teach because they're on the bar exam. But, you know, there's sort of like fundamental concepts about law and property law is one of them. And the sort of traditional way that you would approach property law is talking about ownership interests in property. So things like a fee simple interest or whatever that might be. So, I, I, you know, I, I guess that the the broadest way to look at property is how you might own property. So property law in, impacts not only owners of property, but also renters of property. So if you're a tenant, you have what might be called a possessory interest in property, as in you possess the property, but you don't own the property. And that grants you certain rights as to the property itself, whether or not your landlord, the owner can go in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for the purposes of this discussion, we're going to be talking about owners of property, people that own property. And probably the way that most real estate investors will own property is through a a fee simple structure, which essentially means that 
a you as the owner of property own essentially the maximum interest that you can in the property. So, so if we were to think about a hierarchy of ownership, fee simple is at the very top. Right. And there are many other ways that you could own property. There are life estates, there are tenancy interests, there are fee simples that will end at some point or under a certain condition. But generally, if you own a fee simple interest in a property, which is what all most real estate investors kind of at the level that we're talking about will always own, that's the maximum amount that you can own the property. You own essentially all of the mineral rights, the land rights, the air rights, the whatever rights. Um, it's hypothetical that some of these might be subject to covenants or easements or other restrictions that are imposed on the property. But very, very broadly, you'll own a property in what's called a fee simple ownership, a fee simple structure. Is the fee simple structure denoted on the deed or? It would be denoted in, in the means that you would receive the property. So if you do have a deed, the deed might specify that if you were granted the property by gift or if you inherited it or whatever, it's something that would be in your conveyance documents essentially to the property, right? So if you look at your deed or you look at any of the conveyance documents that you get for your house, you'll probably say something like, a fee simple interest or something like that right. will indicate your ownership of the property, right? I guess that that sort of leads naturally into the next topic, which is what are restrictions that might be imposed or imposable on your property as a, as a real estate owner? So I mentioned before uh, covenants and easements, and there's an important legal distinction between what those are, but I think for the purposes of this overview, it's not super relevant. But essentially covenants and easements are restrictions on what you can do with your property that might be imposed or be on your property as a result of just other things, other people, other interests, other whatever. So one very common example of an easement is that the power company or utility companies or water companies will have an easement over your property to run their possessions across your property. So for example, you might not own the gas meter or the water meter that is in your house, but the gas company or the water company has permission to run those, to put those utility equipment, power lines, whatever on your property. So without that express permission, they couldn't do that. Is that a specific type of, type of easement? Yeah, it, it's a like a utility easement. Okay, so um, like an access easement would be accessed mm -hmm. by a neighbor to come across your sure. property so there are other to, type, yeah. for their driveway or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there are other type of easements that are more, I would say like the hypothetical hypotheticals, which is like you give an easement to your neighbor for him to use your driveway because he doesn't have a driveway or whatever. And the driveway is on your property, for example. Easements are usually granted, the way that most people discuss easements is in the form of some other entity has a right to do something with your land versus a covenant, which is usually a restriction uh, on something that you can do on your land. Um, it could also be structured in, in, in different ways, but very often people will say, oh, there's a covenant on my land. And that means that I can't, for example, um, build a certain type of structure on my land because of something in my deed or something that in my conveyance document. So a very common example would be homeowner associations will have restrictions on what you can do with your property and that will run with the land itself. So even if you buy your property from somebody else, because the property was originally all one big piece of land and then subdivided at some point, there'll be these restrictive covenants that run with the land, meaning that they doesn't matter who owns it, it's with, with the land kind of at all times, that will say things like you can only build a two-story structure on your property, or you can only have people over the age of 55 live on your property or things like that. So that's how a lot of subdivisions will, will work. 
does a deed restriction fall under the bounds of a covenant or is that a separate beast? I know we talked about this or we came across this in the past. It was a, there was a deed restriction that came as a stipulation, I believe, mm-hmm. from some financing that was issued in the past on, on a specific property that yeah, we were selling. That's that's akin to a covenant. Yeah, yeah. I think at some point in the in the world of in the world of law, there's a very important distinction between covenants and easements. But in sort of the world of reality, what you're describing as I think specifically, you're talking about a I think it was a mortgage or in return yeah, for financing. A, it was some sort of subsidized financing. Yeah. And as part of receiving the subsidized financing, the homeowner agreed that the property would be used or would be possessed or or sold to somebody who fell within certain income restrictions. Yeah. Either you would consider that a covenant or you consider that something else entirely, just like yeah. a, a restriction on transfer, mm-hmm. for example. I'll reiterate my question from the first topic. Are these covenants and easements typically listed on the deed or would they be filed separately with the county registrar's office? They're not always listed on the deed. I would say not even typically listed on the deed. Easements are, I would say, usually filed and recorded, uh, although an easement doesn't have to be recorded to be valid. But usually if somebody wants to protect their easement, they will record that on your property record. So it's usually findable in the title search. It's like someone recorded an easement to build a driveway or something on your property. Mm-hmm. Once property is established, like once there's a development on, if we're talking about maybe not in an urban setting, but in a suburban setting that is largely developed already, is it common that you will run into case like active cases regarding easements or does this typically stem from the original development of the like kind of master plan community i mean it really depends what you're doing or where you are i think do you ever hear of other investors or other attorneys who are actively discussing some sort of easement with neighbors yeah i mean there's an easement on one of our properties for sure that i'm aware but it, of but it's an but it's an existing one that predates your it, it like long predates, predates my ownership, ownership right? of it yeah this is, I think, a very common example, which is, so my property sort of abuts a commercial property. And in order for the commercial property to have a certificate of occupancy, they need two means of egress. Mm-hmm. And the only secondary means of egress is if they e- egress to a public right of way, like a street. Mm-hmm. And the only way to get from the back of their property to a street is through my property. So they have an easement through my property to get to a street. Got it. Um, and so a lot of properties in my area have that because, in fact, I have that as a burden on my property. Someone else can use my property as an emergency egress. And on a different property, I have that as a benefit, as in I have an easement over somebody else's property to use that as an emergency means of egress. So that's very common. And is it filed by both sides? So when you, if you're going to purchase, if you're going to purchase a property, would the title company find that on record, Mm -hmm. whether it's a burden or a benefit? They They would find it because it's in the chain of title. So it would be, to be recorded, it would have to be recorded either against you know, with, with, with relevance to the property that it's it. on. Okay. So you normally the, I guess always the only person recorded is the beneficiary of it because obviously right. the person being burdened by it wouldn't have an incentive to record it. So the person who is benefiting of it will record it so that perpetuity people can know this exists even if everybody's dead. That's the very high level concepts. There are other ways that you can be restricted on using your property that are not of the order of easements or covenants. And those would be things like city or state ordinances or regulations of the form of zoning laws. So we encounter this all the time. And this is a very, very 
common issue that uh, real estate investors will deal with. The property will be zoned for a certain usage. And because of that zoning, you cannot do other things with your property. So some examples might be you're in a, you know, R1, R2, R zone, you know, every municipality has a different way of describing it, but you're in essentially a residential zone, which might mean that you can only build a single family home on your property. And beyond that, the single family home might only be able to cover, say, half of the square footage or less of your lot. It might need to be offset from the street by a certain number of feet and from the neighbors by a certain number of feet and can only go a certain number of feet high and can only have a certain distance from the back of the property and all sorts of stuff. It might have a garage. Those are all restrictions on things that you can do with your property that are legal and that are usually devolved on some sort of local authority. So there's probably a state law describing the fact that a city, a municipality, a county, some governing body like that can make zoning laws that will impact your usage of the property. Very, very, very high level. And not that this is something that is a burning issue, but when you're buying property, you always want to be aware of, okay, what you know existing easements or covenants or other restrictions are on the property that will affect my either taking title to the property or my usage of the property. And then much more specifically, what are the zoning restrictions that might prevent me from doing what I want to do with my property? In fact, we're dealing with a zoning issue right now. Multiple. <laughs> multiple zoning issues right now in, uh, in Atlantic City. It's certainly a big pain in the butt, I would say. So... We haven't earned that explicit rating just yet from iTunes. So thank you for censoring yourself, Tom. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a family. It's a pain <laughs> in the behind. <laughs> no, I think but I think butt is okay. The buttocks. Pain in the B-U-T. Um, Hold the T. You mentioned before, uh, I don't want to totally diverge from zoning because I think that's a very critical comp component of all of this, but you mentioned before about the chain of title. Can you go into that a little bit more? Because I think Real estate investors are certainly going to be familiar with that because anyone's yeah. probably run a title search before. But I think people often do that without having a foundational understanding of what is title to begin with. I think it's important to understand what the concept of title is. So there are certain assets that uh, you might have that are subjected to laws, state laws that mandate that in order to own that asset, you have to have essentially proof that resides with some governing body that you own it. So for example, if you buy, I don't know, a TV, there's no title to that TV. You just have it. So you have possession of it by virtue of the fact that it's in your house or that you maybe you bought it at some point or just resides with you. But there are certain assets that are seen as so valuable and important that laws have been created to govern evidence of, essentially of who owns it. So one example is automobiles. So for example, for a car, you will have a title to your car. And that will be something that is essentially held with a governing body. And if you don't have title to your car, if you don't have a way to substantiate that you own it, you cannot own your car, you can't drive it, you'll be arrested for operating it. And the same is true with property. So you can imagine a world in which real property, so you can imagine a world in which there were no titles, as in there, there was no record held for the government agency to property, it'd be very, very hard to figure out who owns what, what the rights are of the various respective people that might claim to own property. So just to go back to your automobile example, when you get pulled over and the police officer asks you for a license and registration, the registration that they're looking for is essentially saying, prove your, show me your proof of title, correct? Essentially, yeah, yeah. And, that, that, and that's why when you go to sell a car, you'll need to show 
essentially the same thing right. to indicate that you do it and you can't get registration without that document. Right. So having registration is essentially evidence that you had that document or presented it at some point. Obviously okay. you can steal somebody else's car and have their registration or whatever. But right. yeah, the, the idea is that cars, real property, I'm sure there are other things that are, you know, maybe airplanes or something. Boats. I don't really know. Boats. There are things that are very, very valuable that governments have decided, hey, it's important that we have a public record of who owns these things. So title is essentially a public record. It usually rests at the county level saying, here is a record of all people who have ever owned this property. So a title report will say, go back as far as there are records. So oftentimes in the Northeast, it's to the early 20th century, maybe the late 1800s. Possibly there are records that predate that depending on the age of the property. But normally for most property searches, you'll go back a hundred years or so and say, okay, a hundred years ago, this person owned this property. And we can see a clear chain of to whom or to what entity that person transferred the property. And what lawyers and title companies will want to see is a clear chain of title, which essentially means that every transfer and every encumbrance and every lien, and we can talk about, you know, liens and encumbrances too, but everything that affects the property has been documented in this title report. And it's very easy to trace how the property and how the different interests in the property flowed over time up until your ownership of it. And if there's a gap in the title report, or if there's something missing, like something was lost or something was misfiled or something very strange happened, like names were changed or people died or whatever, that creates problems. And normally lawyers and title companies, title companies being essentially companies that will research the title for you and then ensure against problems with the title, they will call out and say, hey, we need more documentation or, hey, we just can't give you title insurance without various exceptions that might negate your entire policy. So title insurance, which is what a title company would write, is essentially saying, we've examined the title, the course of all property transfers and interests over time. And we think that the chances of someone sort of popping out from the woodwork saying, hey, I actually own the property, not you, are low enough that we're willing to write you a policy in return for money. So if someone did pop out of the woodworks and say, hey, I actually own this property because my grandfather owned it in 1950 and whatever, 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 it's hypothetical that your title insurance company could say, well, we will defend you as in we will defend a lawsuit against you. Or if for some reason you actually lose the property to that person, we will reimburse you for the value of that property. That's what title insurance is essentially buying you. And so you'll see on your title policy, you'll see the amount that's actually insured, mm -hmm. which is often the purchase price, might be purchase price plus any loan dollars that you're getting above and beyond the purchase price if you're doing renovations. Right. It's important to understand that although in the US we record property transfers, it's not necessarily the case that a property transfer that isn't recorded couldn't still cause problems or issues. In fact, each state has their own laws regarding title recording, what is valid, what isn't valid. Sometimes these change over time. So you might hear things like race or race notice or notice recording. These are all concepts regarding whether or not you have to record title for your ownership interest to be valid. If you record title before some other person, does that make your interest or their interest invalid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It gets quite complicated, but for 
I think for the real estate investor, the important thing to know is you want a, you, you want a property that has a clear chain of title. And if there's a something weird in the title that has occurred, for example, a foreclosure or a death that causes that property to be transferred to a different party, that can cause headaches and issues. And you should probably talk to your title company or your attorney, if you're aware of this, to sort of get ahead of it and see if it's going to be a big problem for your closing. And most of the, most of the time, that will take form they, that will become an issue once it's listed on the title policy or the title commitment which is a commitment that they will ensure subject to certain requirements and exceptions but the issue will be if something comes up that is noted as a title exception because that's essentially the title way title company's way of protecting their behind and saying if some issue arises based on exception number 3 then this policy is not going to cover you. So one example is that, you know, we, uh, Ryan essentially operates a portfolio of tax lien properties. And these were acquired out of tax lien foreclosure, meaning that Ryan had foreclosed on them because he owned the lien on the property. And we can get into what that means and how that worked. But on the property records, there is a sort of abrupt thing that happened, which is that within the past 12 months, these properties were transferred to Ryan's entity via a foreclosure. Because of New Jersey law, there are ways that the prior owner of the property, the person who owned it before the foreclosure, might be able to get the property back by filing something with the court or by uh, you know, essentially disputing that this process happened. And so many title policies written about these properties will have an exception saying, we will not insure against any issues that arise from the foreclosure for 12 months from the foreclosure date. So if the foreclosure happened on March 1st, 2018, on March 1st, 2019, that exception will essentially burn off or become irrelevant. But between that one year period of time, if you were to buy the property on, say, April 1st, 2018, you would have to wait 11 months for your title insurance to essentially protect you against any of the adverse consequences that flow from that uh, foreclosure proceeding. So it can be actually quite sticky and important. And we have actually seen title, even in this portfolio, be contested as a result of, I think it was a death and there being a lot of heirs or something like that. We had somebody essentially come out of the woodwork maybe six months after the foreclosure happened, saying that they wanted to contest the foreclosure. And we prevailed, fortunately, but it was an issue and we had to spend money to combat it. The other thing to note is that there are, if you get a title commitment with certain exceptions on the commitment, those aren't necessarily set in stone. There's an underwriting process that kind of evaluates the risks of each of all these different exposures. And so if you can if you if you strongly believe that something that they're listing as an exception should not be of concern, you may be able to provide certain evidence to support that claim, maybe that the title company itself wasn't able to uncover on their own because maybe it hadn't been recorded yet or it was still in flux. And oftentimes, if you can provide satisfactory evidence, they'll remove it as an exception, which will render the title policy stronger for you and will perhaps make it compliant with what your lender would require in order to fund the deal. Or... Conversely, you or your lender might see an exception on the policy or your attorney and might say, look, this is so unlikely and remote that no one cares. I'm thinking of, for example, we had a um, property that had a mortgage on it from, I think, 1970 for like $5,000 or $3,000. 
which I think is subject to essentially being expunged from the property records because it's so old. But because it wasn't expunged at the time, it's an exception to the policy. And we all agreed that that is so remote that, you know, whatever bank which existed in 1970 and had a single digit thousand dollar lien on the property would ever come to do anything about this, that it's not even worthwhile worrying about. And maybe that that mortgage or that lien was actually dealt with at some later time. It just wasn't recorded correctly or was somehow lost. I mean, the, the property records are maintained by human beings. And up until, I would say, very recently, a lot of these records have become digitized. But up until very, very recently, these records were maintained by hand. And if you look at old deed books from you know before 1950 or 1960, you'll see handwritten, long-form notes about property transfers that have misspellings and errors and all sorts of crazy things. So tracing back title can be can be a challenge. It's it's what title companies do essentially. But maybe we should talk a little bit about liens and the foreclosure process as well. So something that uh, you will probably become aware of as a real estate investor or this concept of liens on the property. And a lien is essentially an interest in the property that some other entity has over the property for whatever reason. So the most common form of a lien will be something that a lender or a bank will put on your property in return for giving you money, so a mortgage. The important thing to know about liens is that, first of all, anyone can put a lien on your property for essentially any reason subject to your right to essentially say, no, you can't. There are reasons why it'd be advantageous for you to put a lien on your property. For example, if a bank wants to loan you money, what the bank gets or any lien holder gets in return for loaning you money is the ability to, at some point, foreclose on the property. Foreclose means foreclose their interest on the property in return for them loaning you money. So a bank will say, I'll give you $100,000, But in return, I need to get a a lien on your property, a first priority lien or mortgage on your property, which means that if you don't pay the $100,000 back, according to my payment schedule, I have the right to initiate foreclosure proceedings on your property. And every state has a little bit of a different nuance on exactly how this is. But very commonly, what I just described is how most states in the US will, will function. So you can also... Liens can be imposed on your property for a variety of reasons. If you don't pay your taxes, like we were just talking about, a tax lien can be imposed on your property and that might have priority over other liens. There can be federal liens, like federal income tax liens. If you don't pay your federal income taxes, if you go to prison, if you don't pay child support, if you don't pay a contractor who did work on your property, they can impose a mechanics lien on your property. If you don't pay all sorts of various things, those entities could hypothetically impose liens on your property. So it's it's another duty of title companies to look for and say, what extant liens are there or open liens are there on your property? And for you to, as the buyer or seller of property, deal with them prior to the property being transferred or be clear that you are selling or buying the property subject to these liens or mortgages in place. So it's not uncommon for there to be multiple liens on properties. The priority of liens, as I alluded to before, is complex. Sometimes it's generally the first recorded lien is the the most senior lien, as in someone who owns that lien has a right to foreclose on the property and sort of wipe all other subsequent lien holders out. But there are exceptions to that, like tax liens, federal liens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, this is a, an issue that your title company and your lawyer will generally worry themselves about. And you certainly don't want to inherit a property that has a lien on it that you weren't aware of and need to deal with because that can be very expensive. In so far as real estate investing is concerned, is there a difference 
as to what type of lien exists on a property as long as it's going to be taken care of at, at closing by the title company. So for example, if I'm if I'm br- looking at one property that has a $20,000 mechanics lien and another property that has a $20,000 tax lien on it, I assume it's the title company's responsibility to cure that and to kind of settle everything at closing. So is there any additional risk to me as the buyer, depending on the type of lien that was previously on the property? There's no risk to you as long as the liens are dealt with, but there, there could certainly be added complexity depending on what type of lien it is. So, uh, and that often has to do with the priority of the liens. So if you have, if you're, for example, if you uncover a lien that's senior to the lien that you are aware of, Mm-hmm. That can be problematic for various issues. If you encounter a lien that's junior, that can also be problematic for various issues. So it's not uncommon for, say, in a short sale, for there to be, say, two mortgages on the property. Mm-hmm. And you might be negotiating with the bank that holds one of the mortgages right. and then discover that there's a second bank involved that holds a different lien, a different mortgage on the property. Mm-hmm. And you might need to negotiate with them to say, oh, I didn't know about you or this wasn't disclosed to me by the seller or whatever. And now I have a big problem on my hands because I have to figure out what you know what's going on versus a mechanics lien which might be maybe some person who's very difficult to get in touch with that you can wipe out very easily or might not be for a large amount of money or it, it really depends on the dynamics of the deal but to your question if all the liens are taken care of by sale proceeds which is very commonly how these these liens are dealt with then you're fine particularly if you have title insurance to insure against that possibility it seems like the complexity is more so in getting to the point where right. the title company will be okay saying as long as we settle under these conditions, these right. liens will be taken care of because they need to know what the payoff amount is. They need to know who to make the payment out to. They need to know who's been servicing it. Right. So oftentimes in the title policy, you'll see language talking about a previous mortgage. So say you're selling a house to a to a buyer and you have a mortgage on it and you're going to pay off the mortgage with sale proceeds. So the fact that you have a mortgage on it will be noted. It'll actually be noted in your affidavit of title that your attorney might write saying, hey, there is a mortgage, but it'll be made very clear that the proceeds of the sale will go to pay off that mortgage so that when the buyer buys the property, there won't be a, a that mortgage, that lien won't be on the property anymore. And if there are a bunch of liens or a bunch of mortgages that are all dealt with by the proceeds, then that's great. So... The converse of this is that it's possible to invest in liens. So as we alluded to before, Ryan operates a tax lien portfolio, which meant that he purchased the liens, uh, purchased tax liens in in New Jersey. And in in many states, there's a a market for these liens. Um, He purchased the lien, which gives him the right to foreclose on the properties under certain circumstances, ultimately foreclosed on the property and then acquired the property out of a tax lien foreclosure. And that's comparable at least conceptually, to a foreclosure that a bank might do for a mortgage or that you might foreclose in mechanics lien. I think there's a market for mechanics liens too. I yeah. think you can, you can buy those. Um, you can buy all sorts of liens and properties. So it's, is, there a, uh, is there a market for federal tax liens? I don't know. Maybe. Can you buy that from the... Like, does the IRS sell debt? Possibly. I don't know. I've never looked into that. I mean, I guess that would be a pretty good lien to have, I suppose. Yeah. Normally, federal liens take priority over everything. So if you have a federal tax lien on your house because you didn't pay your federal income taxes, that's going to be the most senior lien. Okay. That sounds like a pretty good primer to me on property law. Is there anything else that you would touch on as a... Well, you know, there's, there's a whole concept of landlord-tenant law, which I think is a subset of, of property law, but we can even discuss yeah, that as its own, its own episode. <laughs> yeah. I think that'll be... And I think in the future, we can do an episode on on tax lien investing or that whole 
that whole world. Yeah, and I want to say too that this is a, a huge level of complexity. Like what I've just described, there's so many different exceptions and exemptions and interrelated issues that are not obvious from from what I'm saying. And so this is kind of the reason why you hire an attorney. It's not that this is you know like a dark art or uh, totally unknowable to people, but there are things that are part of state law, local law, common law that impact property rights, property transfers, all sorts of issues. And it's why there's this industry of real estate attorneys and title companies and title policies and all sorts of stuff, because it's, it adds risk and there is complexity to it. And different countries do it different ways. It's just the way that the U.S. has decided to structure our property transfers. So take it or leave it, I suppose. Real quick before we transition to, I guess, contract law, is this is everything that you just stated, conceptually at least, applicable across the board in all 50 states? More or less. I, I would say that uh, different states deal with liens differently. So uh, mortgages, there's different theories of who essentially holds title to a property while you have a mortgage on a property is a big difference. Different states deal with foreclosures differently. There are different recording laws in different states. But conceptually, it's very similar. Yeah. Let's move on to contract law. So I think the way that I was thinking about this topic more broadly of real estate law was to break it down into property law, which we just did a little primer on, and and into contract law, which we can go into now. So how would you how would you frame this? So contract law is relevant, obviously, to the the buying and selling of property, but also to granting interests in property, like lease interests. So the agreement that you'll have between you as a, say, buyer and a seller is a contract. And the rights that you have under that contract will govern how the transaction transpires. So the contract will have terms like a price, which is like the purchase price for your property. Um, it might have dates, which is, for example, the, the date by which you have to close in the property or pay penalties. There might be exceptions, conditions, warranties, all sorts of things that are governed by the the letter of the contract. And those things sort of exist in their own legal regime of contract law. They impact property. But if, for example, you're say you're selling a property and your buyer decides not to close at a certain within the, the time frame specified, you have remedies, which could include, for, for example, keeping a portion of the deposit for lost rent or lost whatever incurred in the, the fact that you didn't sell the property. And those remedies are governed generally by contract law. The same is true between your relationship with a tenant. So there is landlord-tenant law, but there's also the agreement that you have with the tenant regarding things like the payment of rent, when rent should be due, what the tenant can do in the property. So I think as Ryan alluded to before, it, it conceptually, you can imagine property law, real estate law in general to be a lot about property and a lot about contracts, contractual agreements between you and other parties. Is it worth going into basics like elements of a contract or is that more so something an attorney is concerned with rather than a real estate investor? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's important for real estate investors to understand particularly real estate sales contracts because those can be very complex and even wholesalers and that group of people I think have lots of questions about assignment contracts, real estate sales contracts. So I mean very basically every contract has two or more parties. So it's between you and some other entity. A contract has to be an agreement, which is sort of a complicated area of law, but in general there has to be an offer as in an offer being, hey, I'm going to buy your property for this amount. There has to be an acceptance of an offer and say, hey, I accept by maybe countersigning the agreement or saying, yes, I accept, depending on the contract, whatever. 
There has to be consideration, which generally means an amount of money or promise to do something or promise to pay an amount of money or something akin to that. There are other various kind of very perfunctory things that a contract has to do. In general, in real estate, um, all contracts have to be written. So an oral contract to sell real estate is not enforceable, although it is in many other aspects of uh, business life. In a real estate sales contract, very typically, you will see the name of the buyer, the name of the seller, the purchase price, the closing date, and then language involving various contingencies and issues. And that's usually the most important part of real estate contracts outside of the the operative business terms, like how much are you selling the property for? Newer investors will sometimes be confused about what, for example, an inspection contingency means or a financing contingency. Very broadly, a contingency means in this context, a means by which perhaps one party can cancel the contract if a certain event happens or doesn't happen. So for example, a financing contingency could mean the buyer needs to secure financing from a bank on customary terms, say a 30-year fixed mortgage. And if the buyer isn't able to secure that financing, the buyer can cancel the contract uh, without any penalty. Similarly, an inspection contingency can mean the buyer has a right to inspect the property by a licensed property inspector. And if the buyer doesn't like the results of that inspection and the seller refuses either to fix them or to give an amount of money that is sufficient to fix them in the opinion of both parties, the buyer can cancel the contract. I just want to interject real quick. From a real estate investor standpoint, I think it's worthwhile to note that while the contingency provides the right to cancel under those conditions, the idea of the contingency, I think, is more so to bring everyone back to the table to negotiate, to figure out a way to push it through if there's a, an agreement that can be reached. Right. So right. as you alluded to with the inspection contingency, in almost every deal, there's going to there are going to be things that one could identify as an issue with the property, but if it's not a truly a backbreaking issue that's going to cost three hundred thousand dollars to repair, there's generally a number that both parties can agree upon at which the project uh, at which the deal can continue to move forward. I think it's very important to note when these contingencies are relevant and when they're not relevant. To that point. If your inspection contingency expires after 10, like 10 days after the conclusion of attorney review on the contract and attorney review we can, is something we can discuss in a second because it's only really, I think, relevant to New Jersey as far as I'm aware. But Well, it's only statutorily mandated in New Jersey, but it. it's very common in other contracts. As in attorney yeah, review period. Yeah. Okay. After the inspection contingency expires... And the buyer comes back and on day 20 and says, hey, the roof is leaking. And this is, this is actually very comparable to uh, an experience we had recently. Yes. But per the contract, if something is brought up as a result of an inspection, after the inspection contingency, per the contract, they are still... Usually contingencies have a, a, a time limit that's bound by something. So for example, as Ryan mentioned, like if you, if you have a contingency that says you have a right within 10 days to bring something to our attention, if you don't bring it up within 10 days, you lose that contingency, it burns off. It's like you never had it. So if you're selling a house and you get a big inspection report and you fix all the issues and then 15 days after that, they say, oh, by the way, the doorknob is uh, broken and we need it repaired you have a right to say no, because that is not 
more or less within that period of time that the buyer had to identify those issues. Perhaps if it happened subsequent, if something new happened, whatever, 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 we can be in discussion. But generally, the purpose of those periods is to say, this is your this is your shot. If you don't bring it up during the shot, you lose that opportunity. And the same is true with mortgage contingency periods. There's usually a mortgage commitment date that is language in these contracts. And if you're a buyer or a seller of real estate, particularly if you're buying real estate for cash or you're trying to close very quickly, it's very important to be aware of what these contingencies are. And you can use them as negotiating chips. So you can say, look, I'll buy this house without an inspection contingency, which is very common to have an inspection contingency. But you can say, I'll buy this house without an inspection contingency, but in return, I need to get a discount on the price. Or I'll buy without a financing contingency, which would mean essentially all cash. But in return, I want to get $5,000 off the purchase price or $10,000 off the purchase price. These are all sort of tools that a real estate investor can use to alter the terms and the conditions of the deal. And you can imagine you can get very complicated and complex with trying to negotiate different things in the deal. You can negotiate even for different types of deeds, different types of ownership interests, different types of uh, taking pro properties subject to liens, all sorts of stuff. So you can get very creative with real estate sales contracts. And all of this is to say, at the end of the day, if the goal of the contract for both parties is to close the deal, then what I'm trying to get at is the ramifications for a seller are generally the only leverage you have is either not selling the property or trying to make the case that you will keep some of the deposit monies. And I think we've we've kind of discussed this internally in the past when certain deals have gone awry because buyers haven't been able to perform. But I guess what what are are there any other ramifications for a buyer not performing on a contract? And if the only ramifications are really the that their deposit dollars are in jeopardy, how conceivable is it that at the end of the day, if a buyer doesn't perform, a seller would actually be able to walk away with those dollars? It's a good question. So this is a, a matter of the contract itself. So in the contract, there might be language about what happens uh, if the deal falls apart. And usually, if there isn't such language that will specify that. So one example is you might say things about liquidated damages, things like that. If there isn't such language, normally you would default to contract law, which is to say the party that's damaged, which is in your example, the seller can sue the buyer for the damages that are occur as a result of breaching the contract. But what will almost never happen is that a court would force the seller to buy the property. That essentially never happens. Force the buyer to buy the I'm property. I'm sorry, force the buyer to buy the property. That essentially never happens in real estate law because there are a bunch of reasons, but generally specific performance, which is to say you must perform by the letter of the contract is not a remedy available in property law, absent like, some exceptions. Normally for a seller, your remedies are monetary damages. And those could include keeping the deposit, keeping some of the deposit, or suing for additional money if you incurred additional expenses beyond what the deposit is. Normally, Does, yeah. Is that typically limited to compensatory damages or can it be punitive also? Usually it's not punitive damages unless there is something that has happened where the, the buyer has actively attempted to break some provision of the contract or actively attempted to defraud you or something akin okay. to that. Usually if they simply don't close, there aren't uh, punitive damages, but there could be incidental, consequential, all sorts of different damages that could flow from you not selling the property subject to essentially the, the limits of contract law. 
Got it. So, you know, if you didn't sell the property to this buyer and that meant that you didn't advertise it for three months, well, I don't know, you know, what the damages are from that, but it's probably your holding costs for three months and, you know, whatever else might flow from that. Maybe rents you missed out on. Rents you missed out on diminution of value because the market changed in three months, all sorts of stuff. So that could exceed or be less than what the deposit is. Oftentimes, the, you know, sort of what results is that parties are a little bit reluctant to sue each other because the cost of litigation can be very high. And frankly, the chances of conveying property that is the subject of litigation can be even more complex. So say you're a seller, the buyer doesn't perform, and you think that you have a legal case against the buyer for some amount of their deposit money or additional money, the chances that you're going to really pursue that legal action are probably not super high because you as a seller just want to sell the property and you don't want the property to be tied up in litigation as you're trying to figure out what's going on. And maybe the the uh, buyer doesn't have particularly deep pockets. So even if you were to get a judgment against the buyer, your chances of enforcing on the judgment are very low. So for a bunch of different reasons, oftentimes what happens is sort of the party holding the the buck is the one in control. So if you're the seller and you've collected a security deposit from the buyer, then in general, you're in, a, you're in an advantageous position because the buyer has to say, hey, I need some of that money back. Whereas you, the seller, could say, look, I'm holding your money captive, essentially, in my escrow account. You can't have it back. But if you are, for example, if you're the seller and the buyer is holding their deposit for the property, that means that you have to go to the buyer and say, hey, give me some of that money. So sort of the, the power dynamics dictate kind of how it will resolve itself. And it, I've seen it very frequently happen where the seller will retain some amount of the deposit money from the buyer for whatever reason. And both parties will sign essentially an agreement saying, hey, we're not going to sue each other over this. And we've agreed that the seller is going to keep $1,000 or $2,000 because the property didn't close. Um, that happened to a friend of mine sort of recently, and it was very unfortunate, but just sort of the way that it was. And obviously, if the seller didn't have that buyer's money as a deposit, that they're never going to sue the buyer for the $2,000. It just wouldn't have happened. So another you know, part of the contract is who holds the deposit. And in almost every contract where the seller has leverage, you'll, say, you'll see the seller will say, my attorney or my title company will hold the buyer's deposit for the duration of the deal because that creates additional power and leverage. If the buyer doesn't perform, you can say, well, look, I have the deposit. So there you go. Similar to how you can use the contingencies as a negotiating point as the buyer, you can also use the deposit terms as a negotiating point as a seller. Right. So in the grand scheme of things, that's going to be almost always your strongest negotiating point or strongest, strongest leverage point. So certainly behooves you to have to require that the buyer has more skin in the game than if they just have, you know, five hundred or a thousand dollar good faith deposit. For sure. And we've seen it all all over the place. I mean, we've seen deposits that have been a thousand dollars, that have been thirty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars. And that I think has impacted a lot the dynamics of the deal. I mean, we've seen deals where the deposit is like five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. And it's very obvious that the buyers couldn't care less about the property. Right. We're dealing with that right now. So, <laughs> one other topic I wanted to discuss under the subset of contract law is the con- the concept of time time of the essence. What's the legal rationale or or background behind that? That's a good question. I, I'm not in, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question. But why is it, and I guess one other 
answer every question is why is it even why is it even required to stipulate that time is of the essence if mm. most contracts already have dates included in them to begin with? So many contracts will have dates in them that are not specific dates. So if you if you read the contract like itself, it'll say honor about a certain yeah. date. So the idea with that is because normally when you when you create a real estate contract, you're not entirely sure exactly when you'll close because there could be subject to financing and to schedules and all sorts of stuff. So you say, I'll close on or about, say, December 1st, but that could mean December 3rd or November 30th or 29th or, you know, anything like that. Not November 20th. Um, not November, not November 39th. 39th. <laughs> we don't have that day. Not yet. So the contract itself won't be specific about that. Oftentimes, dates might be keyed to other dates. It could say 15 days after attorney review, but then attorney review itself could be between one and 30 days, you know, who knows, um, or whatever. So the deal with time of the essence is saying in, in New Jersey specifically, and I think in many states, there is a an additional oversight of um, particular contracts where in order to enforce some of the provisions of the contract, it's necessary to essentially produce a notice saying you are on notice that if you don't perform by this certain time, I will pursue my legal remedies as a result of your your actions or inactions. It's sort of a, an additional layer of protection that's been imposed, I think specifically in this case on real estate contracts, by legislation. It's not the case that you would need to say, I have an agreement between my contractor, my painter and me that the painter will paint by a certain date. And if he doesn't do it, I have to determine what the time is of the essence notice. That's not the case. But in the context of real estate, I think to further, I suppose, protect the parties involved. And because some of the language can be a little bit not specific, there's this idea that most relevant in the real estate context will be if you are selling property and the buyer has not performed consistent with the dates uh, specified, like hasn't closed, hasn't met the mortgage commitment date, you or your attorney as the seller needs to send a letter to the buyer saying, this is your time is of the essence notice, which essentially gives the buyer 10 days to cure that problem. And if they don't, then you can cancel the contract because of their breach, essentially. Um, the, the issue is that it's hard to know exactly when the buyer has breached the contract. So if you say, hey, I'm going to close on or about December 1st, and then it's December 2nd, have they breached the contract? Well, maybe, I don't know. But if you serve them a time as of the essence notice on December 1st, then by December 10th, you can say, well, yep, now they've definitely breached the contract. And given that we're talking about a breach of contract, once again, I assume the remedies would be the same as what we discussed before, where it's subject to potentially compensatory damages, oftentimes coming from the deposit. Is that right? It could be it could be from the deposit, but it, it, the, the deposit really has no bearing except uh, just in, functionally. Except functionally, like, yeah. In, in the legal sense, your damages are whatever your damages are. Right. So they could be a hundred dollars, you know, maybe a one percent of the deposit. They could be two hundred thousand dollars, maybe some massive amount. Well, so what I'm saying is either either way, if if there's a breach of contract because the mortgage contingency expired or because they didn't close for any reason. Or because you serve them time of the essence and they still didn't close, at the end of the day, it's still a breach of, co- breach of contract and right. you would go about trying to remedy it the same way. Your rights as a seller wouldn't just say, hey, I'm going to keep 100% of the deposit just right. for fun. It would be, hey, here are my damages. And oftentimes the damages will you know, equal or exceed the deposit. And you can essentially say, look, in, in lieu of suing you for the rest of my money, I'm just going to keep your deposit. And so we'll write an agreement that says, look, I keep the deposit and I don't sue you and that's it. So essentially, you know, the seller 
get some money and the buyer doesn't have to worry about being sued for even more money than what their deposit is. Are there any other operative terms that you can think of when it comes to real estate contracts? Harkening back to what we're talking about with the deed and the way that you hold property, different contracts will specify the different manners of deed that you you might hold the property in. So real estate investors might be familiar with the concept of a warranty deed or a general warranty deed uh, or a quit claim deed. And those are all different ways of saying what interest in the property you will be conveyed. So a general warranty deed is more or less seen as being the, the best form of deed that you can get because not only does it convey all of the seller's interest in the property, it also warrants against different things that sell this, both the seller and also prior parties could have done with regards to their property. So say in lieu of title insurance, which you should always have anyways, uh, a general warranty deed contains essentially warranties from the seller saying, I am telling you that there are things about the title that you can rely on. And if, if I'm wrong, you can sue me for it. Versus the opposite of the spectrum is a quit claim deed, which is essentially saying, I'm conveying to you the interest that I have in the property. It might be nothing. I might have no interest in the property at all. And I'm making absolutely no statement about what, what interest that is, what other interest there may be, what interest I had before, anything like that. So a quit, a quit claim deed is almost worthless depending on your stance with the party. So very commonly, for example, if uh, one gets married, you get married, you might quit claim the property from you individually to you and your spouse. And that's fine because ostensibly you're quit claiming the deed to yourself and your spouse. And there's no real need to create a more complicated transfer because you know your ownership in the property and ostensibly your spouse doesn't really care about what the ownership of the property is. But if you're pursuing a third party transaction with an actual you know, buyer or seller, you as a buyer almost always want to get something like a general warranty deed or whatever the equivalent is in your jurisdiction. And often title companies will require that or will make a big stink if you don't, because you want to have the protection that a that type of deed provides against other people's interest in the property. So in a sales contract, you will see language about this sort of transfer that is con- that is contemplated in in the in the transaction. And if it says something other than a general warranty deed or whatever the customary deed is in your jurisdiction, that is a cause for some concern. I think you were even talking about getting property by quit claim yeah. transfer recently, so right? So we were talking about that the other day. And uh, my next question was, if you are, whether you're getting it by some type of warranty deed or by quit claim deed, how much does that matter so long as you still get title insurance issued to you? Yeah, it's a good question. And it, it's, it's, I think, almost a question that I would ask the title company with respect to what the title report indicates. So I think if the, you know, if the title company will ensure your title kind of against everything with no exceptions, then more or less, I feel that you can be pretty secure that your form of interest will be okay. I mean, what I would be a little bit more curious about is, you know, what interest exactly are you buying? You know, are you, are you obtaining, are you obtaining like a fee, simple interest in the property? And why aren't like, they willing to? Right, why aren't they willing to convey it through some other means? Um, it could be the case that, the property is required through foreclosure or through whatever else. And those those types of deed, like the deed that you'll get from a like a sheriff's deed, for example, will be different than a general warranty deed. Does that you, fall somewhere in the middle of right, a yeah. warranty deed and a quick claim deed? Right. So it it municipalities and 
jurisdictions might have their own form of how they transfer property via foreclosure. And that might come with various exceptions and et cetera, et cetera. But basically a jurisdiction doesn't want to be in the hook for any of the title issues or whatever that might've occurred prior to the foreclosure. So they'll give you a deed that conveys far fewer, contains far fewer warranties than you would if you're buying it from a third party. However, it is possible for a title company to insure that deed. And then for you to convey that property via a general warranty deed or equivalent to a third party. So just because you acquired the deed through, you know, quit claim or whatever, share sale, uh, foreclosure, whatever, doesn't mean that you can't yourself then go and convey a general warranty deed or whatever, usually assuming that you have sufficient title insurance. So th the fact that there is this title insurance layer above property transactions, which is almost standard, I would say, in every property transaction at this point, has created an additional layer of security above the deed system, whereas, say, 100 years ago, the type of deed that you would get was super important with regards to the rights that you had uh, in the property. I assume in, that, in, that, in the absence of title insurance, your only recourse would be to... To sue, to sue, to sue the person the that conveyed of, the property. Right. Yeah, so to if, try to to try to claim your warranty, so to speak. Right. So if you if you got a property by a general warranty deed, and then somebody showed up and said, "Hey, you actually don't own the property. I do." Your one of your recourses might be to go to the seller and say, "Hey, didn't you say that? You know, didn't didn't you warn me against this exact thing?" There there are a bunch of things that a general warranty deed warrants against. And I think exactly what those are is not super relevant uh, for the purpose of this. But whatever those are, if someone challenges your ownership or whatever, and it's one of the things that you're that you're warranted against, you can then sue the seller and say, hey, where's my money or where's my compensation for what happened? And in this day and age, that process is all would all be done through the title company. But before yeah. title companies were around, not only did you have the burden of trying to protect your interest in the process in the in the property, but beyond that, I assume you had to come out of pocket and you had to take your time to litigate this case to try to stake your claim to the property that you believed yeah. you had I mean, rightfully could, owned. I mean, it still is relevant, except the only issue is that you as the owner of the property no longer see the details of it. But right. it could be the case that your title company could go and say, hey, I'm going to sue the seller because yeah, they, no, gave, they gave course, a warranty. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to make a case for is why title insurance is so important. Because right. not only are you are you warranting against it, but you're essentially paying for someone else to handle the burden of having to fight that on your behalf. I mean, you could almost think that title insurance is a product of how complicated these transactions have become and how complicated the title system is and liens and deeds and And uh, the inability to kind of record things in real time right. and transparently. So this is like why there are startups that are saying, like, let's put every property transaction on the blockchain yeah. <laughs> so that we have full transparency. <laughs> I, and, was, you know, I was wondering else. how long it would take for this conversation to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's that's like a topic of discussion that people have. And, you know, I mean, it's... When, when you go back and look at some of these property records and you see they're, they're written in like pencil from 1910 in cursive and you're trying to decipher what the <laughs> hell they mean. I mean, sure, I can understand the argument of saying like, this is nuts. You know, and in other countries, I think that, you know, property records span back to um, hundreds and hundreds right. of years. You can only I think. imagine what property records look like in Europe. Yeah, there's a, what is it? There, there's a book, the, uh, the Doomsday Book or something like that, which was created in England in like... 1092 after the Norman conquest of England that laid out all of the property in England uh, and the ownership of it. And it's not, it's uncommon, but it is not unheard of for someone to refer back to that book to try to create a title record for their property. This is a thousand years. That's almost. crazy. So just yeah. a reminder, folks, John was a history major. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah, the Norman Conquest, you know, the Magna Carta, of course, the big one a couple. Naturally. A couple hundred years later. Yeah. I'm going to read that tonight before I go to sleep. Oh, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. King John was involved. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think that's the king that they, you know, why the toilet is called the John? Yeah. Because of that king, wow. I think. Sometimes, the more you know. The more you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap up for today. I'd like for this to be kind of a recurring, recurring series of Ask the Attorney John. Yeah. As opposed to King John, Attorney John. There are definitely attorneys that focus their entire lives and careers on this. And so that's, uh, that's not me. But uh, I think that from the perspective of a real estate investor, it's really important to have a high level overview of some of these terms and some of these concepts. And if you have any questions that uh, anything that was unclear that you want us to delve into more directly, you can always uh, reach out to us on social media, through our website, or just email us. I'm john at libertyhudson.com. Ryan, um, Ryan at libertyhudson.com. Very hard to remember email addresses. You can always email us and I'd love to hear any feedback uh, or questions that you guys have. We're going to have a, um, a landlord tenant attorney as a guest at some point to talk about that because that's a whole nother ball of ball of worms. And we'll um, probably have a title company on yep. in the near future to yeah. dive into that side a little bit more. I would love to ask more. some questions of title companies, so that'll be yeah. fun for me. But yeah, until next time, thank you guys for listening and we'll be back uh, next week with a new episode. Thanks, guys. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick Podcast.